I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. In the aftermath of George Floyd's death, protests have erupted across the world and deep-seated anger has come to the fore. How can we stand together against discrimination and racism? How can we move forward? And how do we talk to our children about it all? Tammy Hill Washington is an educator with deep experience in the K-12 school system. Today, she works at Turnaround for Children, whose work, among many other activities, explores the science and actions around learning, as well as social and emotional well-being. Tammy partners with school leaders, helping them develop positive and inclusive learning environments. In this conversation, Tammy shares her worldviews and what it takes to rethink and reimagine our society and education in particular. She speaks about a world in which we listen, show empathy, and embrace others. A world in which we rethink our 20th century education and where diversity and inclusion are ingrained in our shared values. Before my conversation with Tammy, though, an ask from me to you. If you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It'll make a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Tammy Hill Washington. Tammy, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time and your insights. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me. So you have a lot of roles, educator, wife, mother, citizen, just to name a few. To what extent do you feel those are uniquely intertwined at this moment versus to what extent do you feel the need to keep them compartmentalized? That's a great question. I think that these roles for me would be intertwined. Uh, when I think about my identity and my makeup, being a racial, a multiracial woman with roots from the deep South from my mom and white Caribbean roots originated from England, from my father's side of the family, I have a great mixture of um, a worldview and an understanding of how my identities come together. And I really feel like all of those components of me being a wife, being a mother, being an educator help me to understand um, a world, the world in a way that um, makes a lot of sense to me based on my identity and my point of view. I, I wonder, is it possible right now even to be anything other than the sum of each of one's own respective roles and experiences, the way that you just described, and and yet... At the same time, um, it's key, I would think, to be able to get outside of one's own experiences and understand other people's. I think you have a valid point there when you talk about getting outside of one's own experiences. And as a woman and as a black woman in America, I think that I don't have the luxury of ever thinking about um, not operating in my experiences, but mm. for my white brothers and sisters who may not have enough awareness about their whiteness and how whiteness is entangled with black identity from the origins of our country, I think that that would be hard for them, but it is work that's worth doing. So an investment in each of us understanding who we are as ourselves and how we interact and commune with one another across lines of differences is really important um, always, but especially in this flashpoint moment that we're having as a country. 
I think it's really important for um, my white brothers and sisters to understand that they have to step outside of themselves in order to understand the black experience in America and how we carry a double consciousness of having to uphold white norms and values and at the same time having to uphold our own norms and values and how we have to navigate through the world versus a white person who walks through a world that is created for them and by them. On the listening front, what has your experience been like over the last few weeks in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd and, of course, against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, it's been extremely hard that um, black bodies being murdered in cold blood, uh, casted on TV for the world to see over and over again is very troubling and traumatizing to me. Mm. And to live in a household with three black men that I love, my husband and my two sons, I know that um, my husband and I cannot protect our sons when they walk out the door. There's no guarantee that they would come back. Um, so we never take for granted how we have to move in this world because their safety and their bodies are always at risk because of the dehumanization that has been done to black males and black females too, which is often not spoken about. Um, my work in diversity, equity, and inclusion has been um, continuous throughout my life. So this flashpoint for me is not a surprise. It's just another episode of how um, Black lives don't matter to people, and that um, one of the things that is different about the flashpoint that we're experiencing is that there was a captive audience due to COVID-19 that people were able to listen, see, and hear in a way that they were not before. So I think that there is promise in what happened because across racial lines, People are really up in arms and just tired of what is happening. So on one hand, we have the virus of COVID that has captured this audience to see the atrocities that are that continue to be um, committed against Black men. But then on, on the other hand, we have the virus of racism. And some people that I heard refer to this virus as the virus of 1619, when the first slaves landed on um, with American colonies. So there's two viruses that we're dealing with, one that we hope to get a vaccine for, and one, the virus of 1619, that I hope that we can build a world that none of us have ever lived in because we were all born into this um, marginalization and oppression and racial um, stigmatizing of people of color that we have to try and reimagine a world that we can all live in together that's more equitable. What are some of the ways that black parents, and by that, I, you know, I'm counting on your particular experience because I don't think that one can speak for uh, all parents, um, prepare their children to grow up in the United States. How, what are the ways that you and your husband have guided your two sons as they have grown up? Thank you for framing it that way. Chris, because I can only talk about my lived experience as being a Black mother of two boys growing up in America. 
And one of the things I think my husband and I did intuitively and intentionally was really prepare our children to go out into the world um, that will not treat them fairly. Um, for them to really understand that this is a meritless um, system. So it doesn't matter how hard you work because of the inequities that are created, you may or may not get to the opportunities um, that you want to be closest to, meaning like some job opportunities might not happen for you or a program that you wanted to get into um, for grad school might not happen to you because of the inequities that are created in the world. And I think one of the things that we did well was we really had to build our sons up um, spiritually and also for them to have the confidence to actually go out into the world with an awareness um, that there is an inequity specifically and especially towards black males um, that have to deal with stereotype threat. So I have two sons who are both over six feet with very broad shoulders. Um, both of them are athletes, but being an athlete is only one part of their, um, their identity. It is not their entire identity. And the things that they would have to face as um, black men of color and what perceptions or microaggressions or implicit biases might come their way as they were being educated in school. So some of the things that we would hear from their teachers were, I'm so surprised that he did so well on that, um, which is it was like shocking to them. Or we would hear microaggressions like, oh, your son is so articulate. Mm. Um, so one of the things that our oldest son said to me was that my earliest memory you and dad really sitting down and talking to me was like when I was eight years old. So imagine an eight-year-old having to carry around a double consciousness of having to abide by white norms in a school setting and also navigate their own identity at the same time. So the cognitive load of that is exhausting. Mm. And I could not guarantee that every environment they would be in throughout their education would be a safe one that was identity affirming for them. So it was really up to us as parents to make sure that we did a lot of identity affirming at home and built them up. We all try to give guidance to our kids and the responsibility, and I mean this tongue in cheek, of the kid is to not listen to the parent and not to believe the parent. How does that work when you're talking about identity, about micro and macro aggressions? So I think um, one of the things that, that would be important for you to know in terms of context is that both of my kids um, did their elementary through um, middle school education in Minnesota. And uh, we live in a suburb of Minnesota, which was is a pretty white state. And um, one of the things that we did intentionally was that we had to do our own supplemental education at home in terms of identity affirming things for them to make sense of what is happening. So if you speak to either one of my children, they will tell you that we were reading books, we were going to museums, we were watching documentaries, we were talking about those things. So I think because I'm an educator and my husband and I were really intentional about them being grounded in their identity, living in such um, a majority white state, we thought it was really important for them 
to be proud of who they are and where they came from and to understand that. Are there specific instances that, that, that you can point to that, that bring that to light? Sure, there are. So um, we also lived in New York City when my youngest was a teenager. And um, one of the things that is most horrifying about George Floyd and all of the other incidences, episodes that have happened in the past are like you're uh, doing normal everyday things, but being killed for those things and never coming home again. Um, So one instance that my youngest son had when he was 14, he was headed to the dentist on the Upper West Side um, in the 80s. And he went to go get on the train and three officers approached him and asked him, was he someone that they arrested before? Um, and that was quite horrifying to him, um, because he was like, you know, they just randomly picked me out of the crowd and, you know, questioned me about, did we ever arrest you before? And, um, when he came home, he was really upset about what happened and he was able to tell us that, you know, he felt like he was racially profiled and that, you know, he was stopped. They did not frisk him, but he was stopped. And for my husband and I, it set off an immediate alarm around what are the precautions that we need to be taking in order to keep our son safe. So one of the things we did was at 14, we made sure that he had a state ID on him, not just his school ID, because we wanted to make sure that he could be verified with his identity in case something like that ever happened again. Another thing we did was We made sure to tell him um, what his rights were if he was ever approached by any officer um, in a respectful way so that he could survive through that interaction with that officer. Um, So that is one instance that really was sobering for us because it hit so close to home. And you never want to be one of those mothers that's in the club of children that have been slain and murdered by officers. What you're describing is exhausting. It's always on. It's 24-7, no quit. And yet it sounds, you know, in, it, it's evident that the flip side of the exhaustion is the club that you just described. Um, there's kind of no time to be exhausted, it seems. I would, I would say that that was true. And um I know for me that my husband and I have always positioned ourselves not only to help out our own sons, but we've always been involved in programs related to sports because that's a passion that we have around building up young people and teaching them life skills through uh, sports and activities. And um, it's another way to build awareness and community with, with kids Mm. and, um, What black men face, young black men in this country, um, is terrifying to me to think that anyone, anyone's child could be taken from them um, in a moment's notice and be a part of that club. So while it is exhausting, there are things that we continue to do and invest in in order for not only our children to be informed about what does it mean to grow up as a young black man in this country, 
but also give them the tools to equip them to advocate for themselves, to affirm their own identities, to understand their history, and also to um, not only teach them about um, what they have to be protected against, but also to provide them with some exposure to what could be Mm. in the future for them and what they need to work towards. Tammy, what are examples or environments that would serve as examples of what could be? Thanks for asking that, Chris. I think one of the most important things for any child and, of course, my own children to experience is to be exposed not only to peers, but to men that have come before them generationally. So one of the things that we have exposed our children to are powerful examples of men that we know um, that are trying to impact and make a change in the world that is not self-centered, but it is community-centered. So one of the things that we've been intentional about is not only participating in sports as a medium to get to some of the building the life skills or to be around men that have come before them through their own experiences, but to share stories from older men or men that have become before them to give them the wisdom that they need and what it means to be a man, a black man in America. Um, Those are powerful conversations, but not only as a black man, I think one of the things that um, my children have been able to do for themselves is to self-advocate. So not only do we have a community that looks like us, that they are able to um, have their identities affirmed, but they also have, um, both of them have white men in their lives that are older than them, that are mentors to them, um, that help to shape their worldview and that they have conversations with. So I think one one of the things that um, Curtis and I have done very well is that we have taught our kids that everyone's um, opinion and worldview counts and that you can reach out to people and ask them questions or have debates and discussions about what does it mean to be a man in America? What does it mean to be a white man? What does it mean to be a white man in relationship with uh, athletes that don't look like you? Um, So I think that experience for them has been very powerful because you're, they're not walking into um, scenarios where there's this colorblind society and they don't know who they are. They know who they are and whom they're from, but also to be affirmed by your own people in a Black community, but be able to have the wisdom and the knowledge from them and your ancestors that carries you forward, but also be com- confident in yourself enough to be able to reach across the aisle to someone that doesn't look like you and to be in relationship with those people are also very important because it shouldn't, your, your, your perspective or your interactions with people should not be a myopic view of just a small um, slice of who you are in your own community. And I think that is one of the infections to the virus of racism that we have because of the way it was designed we are isolated, we are racially isolated in communities. Or if you are a person of color and you live in a, and you're in a higher SES bracket, 
you may live in a community, but you may not have a lot of people in that community that look like you. So how do you navigate in a community like that uh, where people are not intimidated by you, but you can find some kind of human connection or commonality? And I think both of my kids um, were well prepared for my husband to be able to have those interactions. So what could be for me is for our children to have a better understanding of how not only they are in community with their own people, but how they are in community with people that don't look like them. Tammy, thank you. Thank you for your insights, and thank you for um, letting us understand uh, just a little bit about your family and your personal experience. Thank you, Chris. That was my conversation with Tammy Hill Washington. My thanks to Tammy for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.